Hey everyone, welcome to the second episode of season two of the Ken Converse podcast. Today we're joined by Stana Dawn. Stana, would you like to talk about how awesome you are so that everyone knows? <laughs> Thanks guys, I'm really excited to be here. Um, yeah, I'm Stana Dorn. Um, I'm currently a fifth year PhD candidate in the Brown Lab at Indiana University. I did my undergraduate education at Hope College in Holland, Michigan, where I received the Bachelor's of Science in Chemistry and the Bachelor's of Arts in Music. I did my undergraduate research with um, Professor Jeffrey Johnson, um, different from the UNC Chapel Hill, Jeffrey Johnson. Um, and I worked on rhodium catalyzed CC bond activation. Um, I was also able to do a visiting uh, summer student position at the University of Michigan, where I worked with um, Professor John Montgomery on the synthesis of a non-native substrate for enzymatic oxidation. And now I currently work at Indiana University on copper palladium synergistic alkene functionalization. Wow. So one kind of left left field question, I guess, that I, I don't have here on my list is what made you want to change from doing, because I think you said that you did music or yeah, that kind of thing, undergraduate kind of level. What made you want to change then to do chemistry, I guess? Yeah, it's actually an interesting path for me between those two areas. So in my undergrad, I started off knowing, well, I started off not knowing whether I wanted to pursue chemistry or music. I loved them both. Um, I had been doing music for a lot longer. I had a music scholarship for undergrad and I had to take some classes because of that anyway. So I thought, why not just um, go for both? And interestingly, at the end of my freshman year, I was dead set on dropping chemistry as my major. I felt like I didn't belong in the field and um, I was really struggling with the material. So I was like throwing away all of my notes and my lab notebooks. And I was like fully prepared to just walk away from chemistry altogether. Fortunately, that summer, I was able to do summer research uh, after my freshman year at Hope College. And that's really what kept me in it. Um, I started off in analytical chemistry, actually. Mm -hmm. um, so I did some work using x-ray techniques to analyze heavy metals in tattoo ink which was a really fun, kind of easier to grasp project as a freshman. Um, and ultimately that's what kept me in it. I fell in love with research and the way it works. Um, later on, I still was pursuing both degrees <laughs> as best I could to equal capacity. Um, and I really had, I had to make a choice towards the end of my undergrad. And that was really difficult for me. I spent a lot of time deciding chemistry, music, chemistry, music. I wanted to pursue some sort of um, higher education after undergrad, but I kind of made the rationalization with myself that I can always, um, you know, walk up to a local ensemble and be like, hey, do you need a flute player? I can't, however, you know, if I took a break between undergrad, just walk up to a lab and be like, hey, will you let me like do some research? Um, from that standpoint, I kind of rationalized that it'd be easier to make the transition from chemistry back to music if I felt I wanted to do that rather than um, than music to chemistry. So That's so interesting. I, I find a lot of chemists who have like a music background, which is very interesting. I wonder whether there's a, I think uh, it takes the same sort of skills to be good at chemistry and to be good at music, which is why there's like a lot of, there must be a correlation. There, there are too many. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot. Mm -hmm. 
I'm just thinking something like, yeah, piano, it requires quite good attention to detail. And quite often, if you're in the lab synthesizing something, you very much have to be present doing the synthesis. You can't kind of wander, wander off. And same with piano, you have to kind of, yeah, focus on your finger placement and that kind of stuff. So I suppose as well, Stanner, I guess music, is it something now you do as a hobby kind of on the side, kind of outside the lab? Do you continue to kind of do that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the question is, yeah, can I do that? Yes. Um, and it's definitely, it definitely was challenging for me um, for grad school to try and incorporate that in, especially because most, there's a lot of ensembles that have multiple rehearsals a week, music that you're always practicing. Um, luckily, I, somewhere around my second or third year, um, a fellow student in the department made me aware of a local wind ensemble that's not affiliated with the university, but they rehearse once a week on Sundays. Music isn't crazy, crazy difficult, um, but still engaging enough that I'm not bored. Um, and so it's really been the perfect balance for me. Um, and I'm happy to have that outlet. It's, it's very good. Uh, we're glad that you could do both. <laughs> yeah, me too. I, I'm a little rusty, but um, still kind of have it. <laughs> One of the things that we wanted to touch on is your life before grad school um, and, and like before undergrad, which is kind of interesting. Um, and so, so could you tell us more about what were you doing, where were you uh, raised and, and et cetera? So I grew up um, in a really rural area in northern Michigan. Um, my family and I lived, um, basically we were the dead end of a dirt road in the middle of the woods, like 20 acres of woods, and that's where I grew up. And on the one hand, it was great. I got this sense of exploration and adventure just in my own backyard. I could be as loud as I want. No one would care. Um, there's not really anyone around to care. Um, but on the flip side, this caused a lot of challenges as well um, in terms of um, the schooling and education that I had access to. I started off going to a really small um, school system where the high school graduating class was 30 students. Um, and so somewhere towards the end of elementary school, my parents made the brave decision to switch um, my siblings and I to a bigger school system that was nearby where the graduating class for high school is around 100. So a little bit bigger. Um, and this was challenging. We didn't live in the same county that we ended up going to school in. So I had hour long bus ride to school every day. Um, and um, yeah, it, it caused some challenges for access to, especially um, opportunities in STEM. I fell in love with chemistry um, some point between middle school and high school. And I desperately wanted to work in a lab. I like, I don't know where I was exposed to the image of like people working in a lab, maybe just through my classes, but it was something that I really wanted to pursue, or at least just to have some other greater exposure to chemistry. And um, I really wasn't able to find that. Um, my school had a hard time even putting together an AP chemistry course. And so um, I experienced a lot of frustration in this sort of setting. Um, flipping on the quote unquote local news station, you would see all of these um, more well-funded schools. Um, you would see like their students be featured for academic achievements and accomplishments and all of these things and these opportunities. And um, there was unfortunately a message amongst like my classmates 
especially, and um, I, I don't think it's 100% true, but um, there was kind of this pervasive, like, you need to get out, you need to escape, you need to, like, get out of this town if you want to be someone, anything. Um, and although I don't think that's true at all, um, that was the message that was, um, uh, that I received in high school. And so I kind of saw education as my ticket out. And mm. um, because I didn't have a lot of opportunities to further myself in STEM, I just became that much more passionate to pursue it and show that I could pursue it despite um, not having a lot of opportunities. So mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that's that been a lot of my drive. And um, I grew up in a low socioeconomic household. And so I also relate to financial struggles, especially going into undergrad. And so um, it's given me a lot of perspectives on things and especially trying to help. So that's fantastic to hear. And I think, yeah, like you say, you know, having that drive to, to kind of prove you can do something, um, even though, you know, people think maybe you couldn't, then, you know, that's really good to have that and that kind of innate kind of challenge, I guess, probably drove you through then your PhD, because obviously is kind of a roller coaster, um, as people probably tell you. Um, around that then kind of like, did you have any of those unique challenges that you talked about coming from a rural background that you maybe saw that translated into the PhD? Um, maybe you could touch on a few of those. That actually reminds me of a conversation I had with someone, um, I think it was a couple years ago, and I remember I was sharing my story, and um, they said something which is totally true, which is, you know, mm. there's a lot of people that come from rural backgrounds and socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, but the thing that really struck out to me is I, in my program, don't necessarily know anyone that um, has that sort of background. And so that was something that really, um, that's a conversation I remember because it was something that's totally true, but also I still haven't necessarily encountered anyone with a similar background as me. And so that means that there's still challenges with um, getting people um, in. And it's one of those things that you can't necessarily see from the outside. So it can be hard to tell for sure without talking with people about their background, um, which can be a blessing and a curse at the same time. So I guess during the, you know, the, the times uh, of your PhD when, when you, know, you were feeling low, it was, was, could you say that that's something that kept you going or, or was there anything else? Like what, are, what were your thoughts in your head when, whenever you were saying like, okay, I can't, I can't do it anymore? What kept you going? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and for me, um, I recommend everyone to do this, but I have a folder in my email box that's called motivation. And anytime I get a positive note from someone, a former student, a colleague, a professor, it goes in that box. And when I'm having a bad day, I open that box and I'm like, okay, I can't do this. And for me, knowing that um, I, I'm representing students from my high school, um, is something that keeps me going. Um, at my high school, there's um, a wall that's dedicated, it's called the Alumni like Hall of Fame. And once I get my PhD, I'm automatically going up on that wall because it's so rare for students from my high school to get a PhD, um, regardless, let alone then anything else. So I think I went back and counted one time and I think less than 20 over the high school's history 
have gotten a PhD in STEM. And so um, that's something that I think about a lot. I'm representing the community which I came from. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And I think to inspire, like, like you say, the next generation of young scientists is really important. Like, to be fair, regardless of where you're from, I think to have that drive to, to do that is really important because ultimately, you know, they're the next generation of, you know, world changers kind of thing. So it's really important to you know inspire them in that way. Um, and I think, yeah, from your perspective, to have that kind of unique challenge where it's not seen from the outside, necessarily it's kind of you are unique in that way um, and then you can kind of bring that into how you mentor uh, and kind of inspire people so I think that's that's brilliant yeah I guess that's like one of the things that um, always always inspires me that you know there's no such thing as a, everyone has their own unique PhD story and, and no matter how many people we're going to invite to this podcast if we ask the same question everyone is going to have this different answer no matter what similarities in the background they have well, on average, um, and and yeah. that's that's something that's very inspiring and, and interesting. So thank you for for sharing your story. It was very interesting. Um, so coming back to fun stuff, uh, we are a science, science podcast. So um, I we were wondering whether we could talk a bit about first congratulate on um, this big achievement of of publishing the the paper on the palladium copper catalyzed alkene aeroboration. Um, in ACS 2000, so that was your, your latest paper. So could you, so I guess uh, one of the things that I noticed that when, when I read the paper, it always like, oh, everything makes sense, everything clicks, but I'm sure that's not how it was when you were going through the process. So could you tell us more about the, the background, like the, uh, the, the, the secret behind all of the, the backstage? Yeah, um, so this most recent um, uh, paper that came out was uh, short perspective on kind of the synergistic copper palladium uh, catalysis field for alkene aeroboration reactions. And it's something that our research group has a large history in. I am certainly not the first and hopefully not the last to work on um, this sort of area. But um, yeah, when we were putting together this perspective, um, there's been a number of people that have written on aeroboration chemistry or um, alkene difunctionalization reactions. So we were trying to come up with um, a perspective that would still highlight the chemistry, but maybe from a different angle that hasn't previously been discussed in the literature. And so something that we kind of kept coming back to was the fact that by using two different metals for the chemistry, you have two different sets of ligand environments. And the nice thing about that, it makes it, makes it challenging sometimes to work on the system, but if you get it right, one of the really nice things is that you can um, start to try and tailor and tweak the ligand environments around the two metals to affect different reaction outcomes from a single starting substrate. You can sometimes see this chemistry to access two different diastereomers from the same starting material. You can sometimes tune it to access different regioisomers from the same starting material. And we think that this is an advantage for this type of chemistry. Um, and so we really wanted to highlight that in this perspective. What do you view as potential applications for this research? Of course, it's only, you know, a perspective on kind of what is there and what could be done. What, what, what do you think could be one potential application of it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so a lot of the work that our research group does is methodology based. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I can't claim that this is going to ever make it into a pharmaceutical route or anything like that. But um, we like to um, at least 
try to push the chemistry uh, to somewhere that might be a little bit more industrially relevant. Um, mm. And so one of the big challenges for this chemistry is still getting heterocyclic substrates to work, which obviously have a lot of value in pharmaceuticals and things like that. Um, so that definitely is a challenge that we're interested in overcoming. Um, it's made some progress, but um, I think there's still more to be done in that area. There's also a challenge right now with this chemistry with quote-unquote activated alkenes, meaning that mm -hmm. it's a diene or styrene or you've got um, alkenyl boron type substituents that um, help stabilize the resulting alkyl copper species. And so um, there's also been some really nice work by um, somebody in the cow to get away from that, um, to use quote-unquote unactivated alkenes like alkyl um, alkene, but um, I'd be interested to see how that continues to evolve in the future because I think that's definitely a direction that people can look to. I think you also mentioned um, in, in in the conclusion that the, a lot of mechanistic work um, should be should be explored in that area too. And I really like how you like threw some examples um, of like different palladium just having a, a different um, effect on like you know like thin versus anti. Translation um, mm -hmm. and and it was you know like there was not really that much dive into the 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 understanding of it and and so could you tell us more about like how do you envision the mechanistic work on the system like did you did you notice anything preliminary I mean obviously we don't want to talk about a lot of preliminary data here because it's a chemistry podcast that you know everyone hears yeah. uh, but like just like a bit of whatever you can tell us more about. Yeah, so for um, dust chemistry, one of the really nice things is that um, you can, you know, tune the ligand environments and things like that. And um, there's a lot of screening that you can do as well. There's lots of different combinations that you can try both from the copper ligand side and the palladium ligand side, sometimes substrate as well. Um, and the challenge though is that the system is pretty complex. And so although I would love to be able to just point to a palladium ligand and be like, you take this copper and this palladium, you're going to get a stereoretentive transventilation. That's not always the case. And so mm -hmm. a lot of times what happens with this chemistry is that we can start off making a hypothesis, right? We need a bulky ligand to promote reductive elimination, things like that. But um, a lot of times we find that we just have to do a bunch of screening and then kind of have to go on the back end and do stoichiometric studies with um, copper, uh, to kind of rationalize things from the back end, which, you know, ideally, um, I would love it to be like purely hypothesis driven, but the system is really complex and there's still a lot that we don't understand about it, which is exciting. Um, and so I think it would be really interesting to start to look into some of the parameterization um, studies that like Sigmund and others have done for this type of chemistry. Um, there's aspects of it that might make it too complex. Um, trying to think about doing computations for this is very daunting because you've got two metal cycles instead of one. And um, yeah, so I am really interested to see what we can do kind of on the uh, parameterization side in particular. I think the more that I've done this chemistry, the more I realize it's not only a combination of the ligand on copper, the ligand on palladium, but also the substrate itself. And we've seen some unique data points that don't necessarily match up with our traditional understanding of the system, which is exciting because there's more avenues to explore. 
Yeah, certainly. That that sounds really interesting. Uh, I think what you said there about uh, DFT and kind of computationally analyzing the mechanism, that could be something interesting to see in the future, I suppose. Um, so that'd be yeah, good to if there's anyone that wants to tackle an that, <laughs> <laughs> it would be very, very complicated. Mm, for sure. Awesome. So another question we had. So obviously now you're a fifth year, you said in the in the kind of intro there. If you look back to where you were as a first year kind of PhD student, kind of what were the kind of main lessons you've learned in that time? I wish I would have been easier on myself. This is something I struggle with a lot, but um, I think really trying to hold on and grasp the growth mindset from the start would have benefited me more in the long run and um not to say that i'm slowly working on (laughs) incorporating that more and more but um it can be really easy to say i don't understand this i don't understand organic chemistry like i'm never gonna (laughs) get anywhere with it and for me this was particularly challenging because i did really poorly in organic chemistry in my undergrad lecture courses i barely passed the first semester pretty sure i got some sort of fees for both semesters. Um, but I always loved the lab work and the lab work was what coming in it. But I entered grad school with a lot of insecurities because of that. And unfortunately, we still have a system that heavily prioritizes grades. And so it's kind of, you kind of carry the feeling that, oh man, I didn't get like an A plus in organic chemistry. I'm not cut out for this. And um, I've just been going for it anyways. And I think there's a lot of people that can say that they did poorly in undergrad and still went on to pursue it. So certainly not alone in that, but um, that's something that I entered grad school with was a lot of insecurities because of that. And mm-hmm. over the years, I gained a lot of confidence um, just with the more that I've engaged with the greater community and things like that. Um, Twitter has been great for networking and really helping me see that there is a community out there and that I belong in it. And so. That's something that's really positively impacted me across my PhD as well. Could imagine that kind of yeah sense of belonging for you probably personally is quite important coming from such a small community to begin with. So to have that kind of sense of yeah uh, yeah people around you is really important. Be that yeah virtual or kind of you know in your lab, I imagine as well. Yeah, in my undergrad, um, when I first joined my organic chemistry research group. Um, after my sophomore year, um, I had done research there in analytical a year before, and I kind of saw on the outside, I was like, wow, it seems like a really awesome group of people. They seem like such a community. I want to be a part of that. And so the next year, I was lucky enough to get in the group, and um, I got my own little shelf on the wall, and I could sit and do my homework, and I finally felt like I had this place where I belonged, and I could be myself. Yeah, I think the being being in the lab with, with people is, is it's a great way to to feel like you found your home, at least temporarily. Which is why it's probably probably sad to to leave. I mean, it's exciting but also sad to you know go move on to the next um, <laughs> to the next chapter in your life. What are, what are your thoughts about it? Oh yes, um, I started realizing at the at the beginning of this past academic year. Um, I love doing recruiting events for my department. I love representing the group in those endeavors. But this year, um, my advisor told me that I would not be presenting our group's research at the poster session. And I was just like, no. 
And um, he was like, well, he's like, you're kind of on your way out. And I was like, don't say it, don't say it. Um, so there's been a little bit of denial there, but um, I'm also, I also am excited for the next thing. It's nice to have an endpoint in mind. It's nice to have an idea of what I'll be doing next. And um, yeah, I'm really excited for the future and the opportunities that come with it. We're excited for you too. Uh, we always follow you on Twitter to see what you're <laughs> it's, it's always very exciting to see when, you know, strong personalities go through the challenges and, and get to where they get. It's very inspiring. Yeah. What is your timeline? Are you kind of near the end now? Very, very soon? Or? Entering, I would say the final chapter. So um, I'm fortunate enough that I was able to line up my postdoc um, about a year in advance which not everyone can say that for sure. So um, it's given me a sense of peace in some ways because I have the next thing lined up and, you know, just have to pass the defense. But um, so I'll probably uh, be defending sometime late this year. Um, so I've got eight, 10 months. So I'm not quite at the final, final stage, but rapidly getting there, I suppose. Yeah. Very, very exciting. I think, um, yeah, I don't know about you, but I think when I was writing my thesis, that's always the hardest part. I think, you know, the research is the easy bit. It's then having to describe it in a very succinct way, which can be quite difficult. Yeah, I'm definitely a, a lengthy writer. I've, over the years, more and more become a pro of chopping, but I usually just have to, like, write it all out and then chop like crazy to yeah. get it down. You mentioned briefly that you had the... Uh... You, you line up your, you like made sure to apply for, for a postdoc uh, a year in advance. Is that so for, for those uh, who, who listen and who are getting to the end of their maybe fourth year, what would you recommend in terms of your strategy? Like when when is a good time to, to apply? What if they're not sure whether they want to do a postdoc or they want an industry job or they, so like, what are the steps? Yeah, um, I can only speak from my experience uh, personally for applying for a postdoc. Um, I've seen various things for people that are industry inclined. Um, in terms of industry, most people in our research group start applying early fall, the year before they want to get the industry job. So um, if you wanted um, uh, to start this summer, my lab mates were applying this past fall. So that's at least the timeline I've seen from that perspective. For postdocs, it's really person dependent and also um, a conversation to be had with the advisor. Um, not many people from my lab have gone on to these postdocs. Um, we're still somewhat of a young lab. And so um, it was a really um, black box. Like, I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know what to expect. It's not like a formal process by any means. It's not like you fill out the common application and then you get matched all these postdoc people. Sometimes postdoc uh, openings aren't even advertised openly. And so um, I think it's really a conversation to be had uh, between you and your advisor in terms of working sometimes. Um, the advisor will have the student reach out to the potential postdoc advisor. Sometimes the advisor will reach out on behalf of the student. And there's certainly pros and cons to each. Um, if a student reaches out, um, that has the potential for showing initiatives and things like that, but maybe you don't get a response, 
and you have to follow up a lot because professors are busy and they get lots of emails. And so if the advisor reaches out, um, and especially if they know the person already, that can sometimes facilitate getting a more rapid response. But um, I would say networking is your friend. Um, I think that's, um, I think it certainly helped me get my postdoc position. And so I cannot recommend getting, you know, get yourself on Twitter, just start like, all you have to do is make an account to start liking things and then you start retweeting things and then you start replying things and then you start to get on people's radars and it really facilitates connections from there. I mean, that's kind of how we're having this conversation right now. Um, <laughs> through yeah connections and things like that i think i think that's right i think twitter for sure is probably more yeah the future of networking i think something like linkedin i don't know if you use it or you know that kind of thing but it's i don't want to say it's archaic but it's kind of like i think twitter's more kind of it's one of those social media that i think people can kind of network in a way um, with each other um and it's not as maybe formal as other kind of methods i think yeah i think Traditionally, from my understanding, I think the academic community is, um, by and large, more active on Twitter for the chemistry community. I've, it, it seen, there are definitely lots of industry networking that happens via LinkedIn. So I definitely wouldn't rule it out, especially if you're on the industry path. But that being said, I agree that it's um, kind of a somewhat low barrier entry to networking. I didn't start actively really using Twitter until sometime during my first year-ish of grad school. And so I literally would just like posts that I saw. And, you know, depending on the person, like whether or not they see that you liked it, sometimes they do. And that's just a very low entry way. You're not directly reaching out to them. So it's just a way to say like, hey, I'm here. I appreciate what you're putting out kind of thing. And yeah, I think it just kind of goes from there. So, like, if you want to have, like, a postdoc somewhere, it just, like, keep liking it. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely think too crazy with it, but um, I, think, um, I think it can definitely facilitate more interactions that you see at, like, conferences and stuff. So, it's one of those things that, um, you know, if people kind of know you somewhat by Twitter, then when you're at a conference, you're like, oh, hey, like, I see your posts all the time. And I liked what you said about XYZ, or this is a really cool paper that you put out and things like that. So I think it can definitely help supplement those types of interactions. I don't think um, you'll necessarily get a post just by liking. <laughs> I know, I'm joking. <laughs> that was a joke. Um, Please don't yeah. do that. <laughs> definitely want to start some conversations um, yeah. for sure for sure it's a yeah very relaxed kind of conversation starter kind of way to do it definitely yeah don't be sending subtle signals by liking tweets yeah don't recommend that um, <laughs> I mean, really like and but um, how much mileage you'll get out of it i think will vary totally yeah 100 percent Um, so as you've probably listened to previous episodes, you are aware that we have a random question and a philosophical question. Um, do you have a preference on which you like first? Oh, giving me the option. Let's go random. Okay. 
So our random question is, what book did you last read? And then when do you usually read books? Right now, I find it challenging as a fifth year, um, really trying to juggle my time and all the students asking me questions um, and troubleshooting things. Um, definitely still trying to figure out that balance. But I typically read at night um, before I go to bed. And the book I'm currently reading right now it's called Here For It or How to Save Your Soul in America by R. Eric Thomas. And uh, it's kind of like uh, it's a question of like essays, but it's like a memoir, but it's also got some comedic elements to it. Um, and I'm only partway through the book, but it's um, enlightening and also um, a little bit of comic relief thrown in there too. Fantastic. Are you more of a kind of fiction, non-fiction kind of fan? Do you have a preference? Yeah, I love reading memoirs. Um, hands down, one of my favorite things. And mostly because, you know, everyone has a unique story. And there's so many things that you can learn about the world, about other people, just by reading about their life. And the challenges that they face, how they overcame them. I think it really gives you... Um, appreciation and also um, a little bit of consideration for experiences of other people. And especially for me growing up in a really rural area, there's a lot of um, things that I wasn't exposed to and a lot of, um, you know, like groups of people that I never interacted with. And so trying to get that exposure myself um, and just read and learn about other people is something that I really enjoy doing. Oh, that's fantastic. I think that's kind of a very unique yeah, angle on those kind of books um, that I've not heard before. So, yeah, thank you for sharing. Um, brilliant. Yeah, it's so nice to find time to read um, because, I don't know, it's, I, that's something that I, I've been struggling since I started grad school. Like, I just stopped reading and it's very sad, but like, there are too many things you want to do and there's too little time and it's just... You're supposed to be reading the literature and keeping up with the literature. It's like... <laughs> It's, so, not, it's not the same yeah. reading chemistry papers versus, yeah, reading books. Yeah, yeah. just doesn't have the same. You know, it would that. be nice to have an audiobook on literature, you know? You do a column mm -hmm. and then you listen oh, to a, you know, ASAP, whatever, paper. And it's just, that would be so cool. Yeah, ACM. Big <laughs> idea. I just threw an idea there. If someone wants to make an audiobook. I mean, I feel like it would be in demand. What do you think? Uh, I know, I, I would look. It. Yeah, I, I think, think it so. would be, Yeah, I think it could be challenging just because there's a very, very high volume of literature these days. But um, in terms of selecting which ones actually make it to audiobook form could be mm. a challenge, but mm -hmm. certainly doable. I mean, if it's a nature or, or science, it's not that many <laughs> papers <laughs> chemistry related. For, mm per year right so i think it should be fine if it's like journal specific but like obviously there are a lot of other great papers but um i think that's something that would be cool but um but but there are podcasts i know that that talk about the i think there's a psycho edition that, mm -hmm. that was my favorite yeah uh, well, i guess that is my favorite i'm like stop being <laughs> There's a new uh, one yeah. as well, I think, uh, uh, Farm to Table. I don't know if you've heard of that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, LC, LC, previous guest, um, him and I think a few of the other colleagues at, at Merck um, who do that and describe papers that they've written. 
um, on yeah, organic think, chemistry related. Yeah, I think there's also kind of like more um, YouTube like videos from Total Synthesis Workshop, um, Matthew yeah. Horwitz. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, a lot of good resources. Um, so the, the, the last question that we have for you, which is a philosophical question, what is your most and least favorite, or yes, what are your most and least favorite aspects of mentoring? I think favorite aspects of mentorship are growth, seeing growth and being students excited or one of the frustrating aspects of mentoring can be when the mentee experiences challenges, right? Um, but I think that also has the potential to be one of the most rewarding aspects of mentoring because once they make it past that and they really start to blossom, you're like, yes, we're doing it. Um, you get to be so proud of them. Um, and I think um, some of the most, some of my favorite aspects, um, I love interacting with students. I love figuring out who they are, what they love to do, where they want to be and kind of assessing my network and my experiences and be like, how can I help you get there? Like, I want the whole world for you. How can I help you get there? And um, so it's really fun to kind of help make those connections or help really push open those doors for opportunity for students. And it's really rewarding when they get those opportunities. For sure, for sure, it's like really important. Like you, we talked about inspiring the you know next generation of students, and yeah, I think to see them overcoming those challenges, I, I imagine because probably some of those you had yourself, and you've touched on them during the episode. But you know, to see helping others overcome those same challenges is probably really you know inspiring for you, um, and kind of encouraging you to continue on on your own journey. I think. Yeah, I agree. Sometimes it can feel frustrating. Um from the sense that um, it sometimes it can take a little bit more time out of my schedule than I would like, but um, I'm really passionate about it. And so I will happily spend the extra time to help uh, students out. But I also think you learn a lot from students that you mentor. And I think sometimes there can um, be this um, kind of thought that, you know, you like they're learning from you and that's like the only direction that knowledge transfer goes but that's certainly not true I think there's a lot that can be learned from both sides and so kind of keeping your mind open and seeing what you can learn from them too is really important yeah I think um one, one of the one of the great things about it I guess being in speech as a PhD student like there's a lot of mentoring opportunities especially in new labs um where you're like pretty much the most senior student and um, I think it's the, the, the yeah the, the nice thing about it is that you know it's, it's kind of like giving back because you have so many great mentors and then you kind of like as a, as a way to, there's no way to really thank them but um, that's like by you being a good mentor I feel like it's kind of like you give it back and then they will give back when they are men. it's like it's like a chain you know it's, it's so nice. Mm. Um, but the, the funny and frustrating thing about it is, uh, because I've been thinking about it when I was writing the question, with the, when, you know, you've been through it, as Henry mentioned, right? But you, So you want to save them time, but then if they are, like, have their original ideas and then stubborn, which is great quality, but, like, they end up doing it, then it reminds me of you, because, you know, you, you've been that stubborn person when someone told you, don't do this, do this instead, <laughs> I'm going to save you time. 
And then they don't do that. They don't listen to you. And then they're like, I was like, I told you, don't do this. But at the same time, you're like, you can't be mad at them because that was literally you. So, yeah. you know, that aspect of stubbornness. Well, not, not stubbornness, but like originality, like trusting yourself. Which is, which is, uh... Yeah, something I've really appreciated, especially over the last year, is that um, even if you're not in a quote-unquote more formal mentoring relationship you're not necessarily assigned a mentee or anything there's so many ways um, for you to mentor people um, I guess through more informal ways does um, the interactions you have with students on a daily basis can uh, have an impact and so that's something that I've been uh, trying to learn and explore more as a fifth year it's, that's a really interesting insight and I think those skills as well that you've gained from mentoring are transferable to lots of different you know careers and things that you could do in the future so that's you know really good to expand those you know horizons in that way so I mean that brings us to the end of this episode and you know I think from our side just really thank you for coming on it's been brilliant to chat to you and kind of learn more about your story and kind of where, where you're going where you've been where you're going um, so yeah really really um, really pleased to have you on yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, we talked a lot about learning about people's journeys, and that's exactly what you're doing with this podcast, is really helping people share their journeys. And so, Yeah, um, no, we, we really hope people. people who listen can, you know, yeah. people who relate especially will mm-hmm. make their life easier by listening to your story and how you overcame all these challenges. So thank you again. Mm-hmm. So if, Stana, if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way to get in touch? Yeah, um, I love Twitter. So um, it's uh, Stana underscore Dorn on Twitter. Um, you can also find me on LinkedIn. I think a simple Google search should help you get there. Um, but yeah, I love interacting with people and helping people with things. So definitely feel free to reach out. Fantastic. Amazing. And yeah, if people want to reach out to us as well, you can over at uh, Ken Covers Pod on Twitter. Um, we also welcome DMs from people if they're interested in being a guest on a future episode. Um, and just to remind people, if they want to, they can listen to previous episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else. Um, just Google us as well. I think you'll find it. Um, and yeah, we just want to say thank you again to Stana for being a, an amazing guest. Um, and I hope everyone enjoyed listening. And uh, have a great day. Bye.